These men come down here from New York and from Florida to find out my reasons on rock and roll music and why I preach against it, and I believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. Why I believe that is because I know how it feels when you sing it. I know what it does to you, and I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. Hey, what are you talking about, man? I know the, the, the lost position that you get into in the beat. If you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is that they like, first thing they'll say is the beat. The beat, the beat. Welcome one, welcome all, and welcome back to another edition of the Rock and Roll Bible. Wow! It's been a while since I've said that. Not bad right out of the box, not bad. All right, Hamilton! I'm Michael Devon, and uh, this is the Rock and Roll Bible. This is where we crack open the big book on rock history and read from its pages some of the history, lore, uh, methoi, if you will, if you'll indulge me on that one. And uh, this is a podcast where fact can be separated from fiction or even sometimes fiction can be sensationalized because that's the way the artist wants to keep it. And that's the exciting thing about rock music as a genre. The realm of rock is filled with tales of brilliant minds, musical genius, and uh, infamous outlaws, right? Speaking of all things in the rock realm, I am... Embarked on a world tour with White Snake in support of a new record, and uh, I've been out there meeting some of you guys, and uh, I salute you. I thank you for coming out to live shows and keeping that alive in the world, on the globe. We need it, man. And uh, I also thank you for supporting this uh, podcast, because a few of you have expressed a little bit of uh, sorrow in not hearing my lovely voice uh, tell you about rock history, and uh, thank you for letting me know that, because... Uh, who am I to neglect, you know? But recently, uh, I was up in uh, Finland, and Norway, Sweden, and um, man, beautiful, beautiful in the summertime. As you know, it's dark most hours in the winter and light most hours in the summer, and uh, this might have something to do with why the metal is, in fact, so black up there. And uh, speaking of which, uh, Finland uh, hosted its very first annual heavy metal knitting world championship. And uh, yes, you heard that right. A heavy metal knitting world championship. And uh, you've got to look at the pictures, man. It's pretty awesome. Just metalheads, man, taken to the stage with their knitting needles uh, dressed just like metal gods and goddesses while uh, the blackest of metal pumps through the PA system. Only in Finland, man. That's that's hardcore. I salute you, uh, heavy metal knitting world championship in Eastern Finland. Rock on. All right, let's spark this thing up, shall we? Born this week, July 23rd, 1952, John Howard Rutsey. The original Canadian drummer, best known as co-founding member of the band Rush. And John was the drummer on uh, Rush's debut album, which dropped in 1974. And he was there for one record, and he quit soon thereafter. Um, 
There were some musical differences going on there. I think that Rutsy was more into bands like The Faces and Bad Company and kind of the more of the cock rock, if you will, of the time. And uh, Whereas Getty and, and Alex were into Genesis and Yes and um, some of the more progressive stuff. But uh, he also had a lifelong battle with diabetes, uh, which I think is what ended up killing him uh, in the end. I think he had a heart attack uh, 2008, maybe. And uh, if you watch the uh, documentary uh, Rush Beyond the Lighted Stage, uh, and if you haven't seen that documentary, do yourself a favor and check it out. Whether you're a fan of the band or not, it's a pretty big adventure uh, of a power trio that just explodes globally. Um, Fascinating. But uh, you can hear John Rutsey speak in that documentary, and uh, they pay him a fitting tribute, I think. And I think they hold him in high regard because uh, Alex says it in interviews. uh, No John Rutsey, no Rush. So uh, happy birthday to the working man, original Rush drummer John Rutsey. Also born on July 23rd, 1965, Saul Hudson, otherwise known by his stage name Slash, is born in London, England, and... uh, is born unto some pretty interesting parents, actually. His mom uh, was a costume designer, a very prominent one, who designed for David Bowie and others. And his father uh, was an Englishman and an artist who designed album covers for uh, Joni Mitchell and uh, Neil Young. So Slash, man, he was born to become the iconic rock and roll guitar god that he is. There is one and only, and uh, he's a very prolific guy, man. He's got, uh, obviously, GNR. They're out there just killing it globally. And then he's got Slash's Snake Pit. He's got, one time he had Velvet Revolver, and then uh, Slash with Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators, and uh, not to mention all of his session work and, and whatnot. He's a, uh, a very prolific dude. Uh, so, hats off, and uh, no pun intended, happy birthday to Slash.
My Michelle off of Appetite for Destruction, the debut album, probably one of the biggest debut albums in rock history by a band, Guns N' Roses, because it's Slash's birthday at 54. I believe it was Seymour Cassell, the actor. You know that guy? You know who I'm talking about? Uh, he did uh, the Wes Anderson movies, Life Aquatic and Tannenbaums, but younger guy, he did all those uh, Cassavetes movies, you know? Um... I think he gave Slash the nickname Slash, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Look into it. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. 50-50 chance there. Anyway, moving on. A very happy birthday to Roger Taylor, Queen drummer, born July 26, 1949 in Norfolk, England. Uh, Roger Taylor is a force of nature, musical talent. Uh, musician, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist. Uh, he has his own sound. He has a very unique sound as a drummer. Uh, he's got a great singing voice, and uh, he's done a lot of collaborations. Uh, I most recently saw him, actually, in a parking lot uh, performance, a warm-up gig uh, with um, Chevy Metal. It's uh, Taylor Hawkins' uh, cover band. He's got a little power trio there, but... Uh, it was a really cool day, man. They set up in the parking lot uh, behind uh, the uh, Palladium in Hollywood. And uh, one by one, you know, the Foos came out, which was really cool. So it was a Foo Fighters uh, Chevy Metal performance. And then Queen came out. Uh, Queen came out. Uh, Roger Taylor came out uh, and uh, did a live version of uh, Under Pressure. Uh, that was definitely a concert and uh, an afternoon to remember. Happy birthday, Roger Taylor. Well, all right. Star Child, citizens of the universe, recording angels. We have returned to claim the pyramid. Partying on the mothership. I am the mothership connection. Born July 22nd, 1941 in Kannapolis, North Carolina, George Edward Clinton. The great American singer, songwriter, band leader, record producer, collaborator, and funkiest of the funkadelic, Mr. George Clinton. Uh, what can we say about the man? Days ago, 
church you sign with love and kisses made a comeback sign Insufficient fun Can you get I wanna know if you can get to that Can you get Can you get I wanna know if you can get to that Can you get And your loving days are done I text you sign with the love and kiss a later Come back shine insufficient fun Y'all get to that Can you get to that? I wanna know I wanna know if you can get to that Can you get Can you get I wanna know if you can get to that Can you get
Yes, it doesn't get much tighter than that. Good to your ear hole off of 1975's Let's Take It to the Stage. Before that, we listened to Can You Get to That off of Funkadelic's 1971 release Maggot Brain. Kind of the beginning of uh, what would eventually turn into a funk rock fusion for the band Funkadelic by the time they got to 1975. I mean, the guitar playing and the bass playing. That's rock, and uh, all under the care and supervision of a most brilliant mind. George was raised in Plainfield, New Jersey, and uh, that's where he discovered his passion for music. He formed a doo-wop vocal band called The Parliaments uh, in 1955. I mean, he was a teenager in 1955. And he would go on to write songs uh, in Detroit uh, as a music producer and songwriter from Motown, all the while working with his group, The Parliaments. They did eventually get a hit, uh, but he had some issues with the label, and he held off on the songwriting. He refused to do it and secretly uh, formed a band called Funkadelic with the same members of Parliament. And then he eventually retained the rights to both the names, uh, and Parliament and Funkadelic have independent releases uh, before officially becoming a collective in the mid-70s. But George Clinton uh, is the notable mastermind behind all of the uh, different incarnations of uh, P-Funk. And the other offshoots, you had uh, the Brides of Funkenstein, right? Then you had uh, Bootsy's Rubber Band. I mean, these are all offshoots from uh, the P-Funk family. Even into the 90s, we're looking at uh, George's music. How much did George inform uh, the music of G-Funk, right? Which was the whole style that dominated the 90s with uh, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and all those hip-hop acts that were sampling uh, all all the old hits and basically reinventing um, the uh, P-Funk sound with the G-Funk yeah. style. Ain't nothing but a G-Funk, baby. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. Happy birthday, George Clinton. Genius American composer. And another birthday shout out to rock and roll's angriest uh, disgruntled literary, Mr. Don Henley. Uh, was born on July 22nd in 1947. Interestingly enough, this is also the same week that the Eagles LP One of These Nights uh, hits number one. That would have happened on July 26th, 1975. Dawn would have turned 28 years old. So, wow, what a killer way to spend uh, your 28th birthday, right? The same week that uh, your album hits number one. And interestingly enough, uh, this song was released on the singer's birthday in 1980. Don't you know promises were never made to 
Michael Philip Jagger, born July 26th, 1943. He is now 75 years old. And if you have not seen any of his recent posts on Instagram or what have you, um, post-stent surgery on his heart, uh, please do yourself a favor and check it out because he's as vibrant and energized and full of life as ever at 75. And he's a testament 
to the fountain of youth that is rock and roll. I mean, it's crazy, man. He's 75. Just had a stent put in and is back at it, back on stage. Eight children, right? With five different women. Five grandchildren. He's a great-grandfather. Outside of singing and songwriting, he uh, is an actor, a film producer. He's in a new movie with Donald Sutherland. And at one time, he was the quintessential counterculture figure. I mean, we forget because he's 75 now, you know, how sexually potent, you know, this man was. What a force, what a presence, and what a voice. A completely distinctive, unique, one-of-a-kind voice. And uh, if I may digress for a minute, he made a killer record with uh, a band called the Red Devils, prominent in the early to mid-90s. They originally called the Blue Shadows, and then the scene for them became so hot in L.A. that uh, they were attracting the attention of Billy Gibbons. He'd come down and jam, Angus and Malcolm, Black Crows, Brian May. And so Rick Rubin ends up going down to watch this band, uh, the Blue Shadows, play. And basically, he ends up producing their debut album and changes the name to the Red Devils and says to them, look, we're going to make a live album. And uh, there'll be no overdubs. Uh, it's all going to be one take. And uh, we're just going to call it King King. And King King was recorded at the club, King King, during uh, their regular Monday night performances uh, back in 91. So where does Mick Jagger fit into this? Well, Rick Rubin was producing Mick's third solo album, if I'm not mistaken. And so uh, when um, uh, Rubin turned him on to it, Mick went down to King King on the regular Monday night jam and uh, got up on stage and uh, played Who Do You Love with them and some little Walter and stuff. Then about a month later, uh, Mick called him down and said, hey man, come into the studio. And they did a 13-hour recording session at Ocean Way in Hollywood where Jagger and the Red Devils just recorded 13 songs. And it's a great album. Most of it's one, two, three takes, you know, no overdubs. But Mick is a killer, spontaneous. It's just he's right at the edge, man. Uh, and you can really hear all of Mick's early influences coming out, that early Chicago blues. Um, back in the early days when he was just a kid trying to figure it out, it was those Chicago blues players, man, that informed Mick, especially uh, Muddy Waters. Anyway, I digress. Red Devils, Mick Jagger. If you can find that record, get it. Also this week, July 22nd, in 1965, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Bill Wyman appear in a London courtroom and are found guilty of insulting behavior for urinating against a London gas station wall. And uh, they argued that the uh, owner had refused to give them the key to the men's room, probably because they were a bunch of long hairs, and uh, they were arrested for micturating on public grounds. Who else did that? Uh, Ozzy, right? Ozzy peed on the Alamo. Uh, he's got a great mugshot. I don't know if that's the Alamo mugshot, though, that they associate, but he's wearing the, um, the hockey jersey, the Blues hockey jersey. And then uh, who else? Izzy. Izzy Stradlin, right? He peed on an airplane once. If I'm not mistaken, Izzy Stradlin openly micturated on an airplane. Oh, Trivia there for you, circling back around to the GNR to Slash's birthday and all that. 
Anyway, what else can I tell you? 1969 this week, speaking of the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, a founding member of the Rolling Stones, uh, appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine uh, following his death on July 3rd, a most mysterious death. A book came out uh, a while ago that uh, where the author was claiming that uh, Brian Jones was actually murdered and uh, there was a cover-up. I don't know if there's any truth to that. It remains a rock and roll whodunit mystery. Maybe worth exploring if you're a Stones fanatic, but uh, otherwise, yeah, drowned in his pool. Uh, there was talk that one of his employees, um, there may have been uh, a struggle or something in the pool. The gentleman snapped, drowned Brian Jones, and uh, allegedly admitted to it on his deathbed. And on that happy note, also on July 22nd in 1967, The Doors perform Crystal Ship and Light My Fire on American Bandstand. Right as we went into the Bee Gees film, you said something about The Doors. What is the favorite song that you have? Uh, Crystal Ship. Just so happens that that's what they're going to do, so that makes a nice introduction. So ladies and gentlemen, would you please greet The Doors! Before you slip into unconsciousness I'd like to have a Another kiss, another flashing chance and bliss, another kiss, another kiss. The days are bright. And filled with pain Enclose me in your gentle rain The time you ran was Till insane We'll meet again We'll meet again That song was a lover's lament uh, written for uh, Mary Werbelow, Jim's first girlfriend before uh, the 
now infamous Pamela Curson. But uh, according to Venice Beach lore, uh, Morrison wrote that song um, after taking some LSD when he was up in uh, Santa Barbara, and he was staring at the blinking lights uh, of an offshore uh, oil rig, and uh, referred to it as uh, the Crystal Ship. And speaking of Jim Morrison and the Doors, uh, on July 22nd, 1971, 13 days after Jim Morrison is pronounced dead, uh, the Doors are awarded a gold album for uh, L.A. Woman their final album and one of their finest uh, musical moments John Densmore uh, shines on that record speaking of John Densmore in 2005 on July 22nd Densmore uh, wins a ruling that keeps the other members of the Doors the surviving members Manzarek and Krieger from using the band's name as part of their oldies act that's what he was referring to it as the Doors of the 21st century he wanted no affiliation with the act and wanted to preserve and protect Morrison's legacy and the legacy of the Doors and speaking of John Densmore on July 22nd 2001, John Densmore, Bonnie Raitt, and some others are arrested in Illinois for demonstrating against a company uh, which they claim destroyed uh, the rainforest. And so uh, they went down there and they were among the activists that were arrested and uh, in a public protest. This week in 1972, The Who released the single Joint Together. Recorded the same day as uh, the other single Relay, and a demo version of Long Live Rock. These were remnants of uh, a failed uh, concept album entitled Lifehouse, but a masterpiece would ultimately emerge through this so-called failure, and that would be the album Who's Next?
1971 release who's next um an interesting tune and i play it because uh i want to draw your attention to the instrumentation that pete townsend employs here he utilizes these textures to great effect i think he's using these synthesizers of the time the vcs the synthes uh he's got a track of that and then he's got his guitar solo going through an envelope follower which was part of the uh, arp odyssey synth so he's employing the technology of the time, which is really cool, but he's layering these textures over really simple um, instrumentation. An acoustic guitar, uh, bass guitar, and drum. No Roger on vocal, it's Pete on vocal. And uh, Moon's playing on this track is standout. His snare drum is cracking, it's lively. And Entwistle's bass line on this is just omnipresent and fluid and perfect. Going mobile off of Who's Next? On July 23rd and 24th of 1977, Led Zeppelin played a sellout crowds at the Oakland Coliseum, referred to as Day on the Green, and uh, organized by Bill Graham, the famous concert promoter. Peter Grant, uh, Zeppelin's manager, and Bill Graham did not get along so well. And uh, apparently what had happened on the day, on the 23rd, is that a member of uh, Bill Graham's crew asked uh, Peter Grant if he needed help getting down some stairs, which Grant perceived as a slight on his weight. He was a big man. And so Grant's muscle, uh, who he had brought in uh, from England uh, to protect Zepp, knocked out this uh, employee at the concert. And... uh, This ignited a confrontation between Graham's security and Zeppelin. Uh, Later that day, Peter Grant's son was uh, caught uh, taking a poster down from one of the trailers, and uh, I believe he was struck by this guy. And uh, John Bonham witnessed this, so he went up to the guy and uh, either kicked him or smacked him or something, and... um, He gave him a smack in the puss, and uh, this infuriated Bill Graham. Bonzo went back and told Peter Grant this infuriated Peter Grant, so he gets his muscle and beats this guy pretty severely from what they say. So on the 24th of July, uh, a SWAT team shows up at the band's hotel and arrests Bonham, Grant, uh, tour manager Richard Cole, and the security guy who beat the crap out of the employee at the concert. And so... The Zeppelin entourage fly to New Orleans for the next show after they were bailed out. And um, once they were settled in, Plant received a call from his wife and learned that his young son, Carrick, had died suddenly. And Plant immediately flew home to England, and uh, Led Zeppelin would never play stateside again. If you go onto YouTube and... um, Plug in Day on the Green, Led Zeppelin, and uh, you'll come upon this 8mm footage, which is really spectacular, like 1970s, Oakland, California, sunny, you know, bleach blonde, groovy kids, you know, listening to Zeppelin open their set with Song Remains the Same, 77, in support of the album Presence. <laughs> and speaking of Black Sabbath, I'm not really sure how many people realize that uh, members of Black Sabbath and members of Led Zeppelin were... Uh, 
old friends. Um, everybody coming out of the uh, Birmingham area um, in England uh, all kind of palled around and uh, you know there's some lore out there that Bonzo went to a Black Sabbath show and uh, got behind Bill's kid and destroyed it. And then there's stories that uh, there was a jam session that actually uh, transpired between Robert Plant, John Paul Jones, and Bonzo at the uh, Sabotage recording sessions, right? which would put us in 1975. And uh, no known recordings exist of the jam. I read that... Uh, Bonzo wanted to jam uh, the song Supernaut off of Black Sabbath's Volume 4 album. The rumor mill also has it that uh, the guys in Zeppelin were really down there at the studio to scout out signing Black Sabbath to their uh, Swan Song label. Uh, they had recently signed Bad Company and they were looking for acts. And uh, because the guys in Sabbath had recently gone through some hell with management or something or the label, they didn't want to make any moves. They were just fried. Um, but I can imagine what uh, some of those records would have ended up sounding like had uh, Jimmy Page and uh, the Swan Song label got behind the uh, wall of sound that uh, was Sabbath.
Masters of Reality with the song King Richard the Lionheart off of the album Pine Crossed Over, released in 2009. And if I'm not mistaken, the chief songwriter, Toonsmith Chris Goss, uh, got the name for the band from his copy of Black Sabbath's Master of Reality. Uh, with a misprint on their typo that says Masters of Reality, and I believe that's where he got the name. And uh, a very happy birthday to the album Master of Reality, released in 1971, Black Sabbath's third album, and the only album to reach the U.S. Top 10 until the release of 13. But that doesn't count, because Bill Ward's not on that one. And in the words of Bill Ward, quote, I always look at the first three albums as being part of the same time period for us. But for me, it was Master of Reality that defined how good we'd become. The band had sort of reached a pinnacle with it. While I like all the other records, this is the one where I believe we found ourselves. This is really the first proper studio album. It also marked a point at which we began to develop into something else. I know people feel that Sabbath invented heavy metal with our debut album, but I believe that it's with Master of Reality that we proved the potential and power of the music. It's also a record where we weren't afraid to show our vulnerable, sensitive side. And with that, I bid thee adieu. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of the Rock and Roll Bible. I hope you're having a great summer so far. Try to get out of the house, get out into some nature. Go see a cool live act. Support your local musicians. Maybe buy yourself a record player. Maybe buy this album, Master of Reality, on vinyl. Take it away, Bill Ward, on lead vocal. My name, it means nothing. My fortune is less. My future is shrouded. Stop crying since you went away.